Welcome to AUCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. Hi, my name is Dan Milner, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer of ASCP, and I work on all of our global health projects, but I'm also an anatomic and clinical pathologist, and I'm really excited to talk with this group. And my name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at AACP, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. Today, we're talking about transgender pathology. We've got some great guests lined up, and I'm looking forward to hear what they have to say. Dr. Jeff Sorrell is Assistant Instructor of Pathology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, working in the Next Generation Sequencing Lab. His clinical research interests include understanding how lab medicine impacts transgender healthcare and improving genetic variant interpretation. Julie Papango, MLS ASCP, is a medical technologist, humanitarian aid worker, award-winning public speaker, and a member of the Society of Transsexual Women of the Philippines, which is the pioneer trans-focused advocacy and support group in the Philippines. And Dr. Robin Legallo is a general surgical and autopsy pathologist with subspecialty training in pediatric pathology at the University of Virginia. She educates on barriers of healthcare for transgender individuals and advocates for increased health services and insurance coverage nationally and at her own institution. She has a particular interest in cancer screening in this population. Robin is inspired by her 23-year-old transgender daughter. Welcome to you all. We're so excited to have you all here today with us. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Looking forward to it. So first, we have to get a little housekeeping out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology, ASCP, is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education, or CME, for a physician. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with their extent of participation in the activity. Perfect. All right, Julie, I'm going to start with you. Could you explain a little bit or talk a little bit about what do we mean when we say transgender? That's a very great question since we're talking about transgender pathology. I would like to do an exercise first. Yes, absolutely. Okay. We're going to ask you four basic questions and you just answer it internally. You don't need to voice it out or whatever. So first question, when you were born and the doctor saw what's between your legs, your genitalia, what was the gender marker that was placed in your birth certificate? It could be M, it could be F. Second question, because of that gender marker, how did your parents raise you to be? Did they raise you to play with guns, balls, trucks, or did they raise you wearing pink dolls and wearing skirts? That's the second question. Third question, when you grew up and you had that internal sense of yourself, who did you think you are? Like, did you felt like you're female or you're male based on societal standards, neither or both? And the fourth question would be, who are you sexually, romantically, spiritually attracted to? Is it towards someone who you identify as the same sex with or not? So you have those four questions. So when we talk about gender and sexuality, we need to make sure that we're aware of four basic principles. I call it usually the AEIO, or the vowels of your sexuality and gender, and your AEIO would comprise you, just some mnemonics so we can easily understand it. What is A? A would be your assigned sex. This is something that the doctor or your parents would prescribe to you once they see what's in the middle of your legs, in your genitalia when you're born. So if you have the penis, then you will have the M gender marker in your birth certificate, and if you have the vagina, you will have the female gender marker in your birth certificate. That's assigned sex. Then, because of this assigned sex, you were raised to express your sexuality and your gender based on that prescription. So, for example, you're born and assigned male at birth. Then your parents would only, like, maybe buy blue clothes for you, tell you to not cry because it's not boy enough. Or if you're a girl, your parents would like you to dress as a princess. And because of that, you express yourself based on what was prescribed to you. That's the gender expression. And then the third is when you had your like, awakening in the world, how did you feel your internal sense of who you are? 
Um, that's the gender identity. Do you feel male? Do you feel female? This is regardless of what was assigned at birth. This is regardless of how you were raised to express your gender. This is your internal sense of yourself. That's the gender identity. And then O would be your orientation, who you are romantically, sexually, spiritually attracted to. And those AIO would be you. Okay? So the challenge is because of the assigned gender marker, people think, and society in general, think that it's only one way. Whatever your A should dictate your expression, should dictate who you identify, and should dictate who you should be attracted to. Right? That's what we call the binary system or the heteronormative cis binary system. There's a problem in that. Why? Because there are some people whose identity is not aligned with their A. I'll use myself as an example. My A at birth assigned sex is male. When the doctor saw, ah, your kid has this part, then your kid is male. And because of that, I was raised to be a boy. I cannot play with dolls. I cannot dress with a skirt. I cannot wear pink. However, growing up, probably around as early as age three or four, I already had that sense that my identity is not aligned with what they're telling me. Internally, I feel the sense that I'm female. So this is what usually the, the journey of transgender people are. Their assigned sex is different from their gender identity and sometimes gen their gender expression. And usually it's conflated that if you have one, then you should follow the other, which is very limiting because like, it's very restrictive. It's very narrow. So we usually challenge people that should we follow this system and change the people to follow the system or which change the system so that people can be accepted. So basically that's transgender. So trans coming from the Latin word opposite. So it's not aligned. It's not on the same side. So when you hear the word cisgender, these are people who are in their assigned sex is aligned with their gender identity. They're assigned female at birth, they identify as female. They're assigned male at birth, they identify as male. Yeah, I love that explanation, and especially how you say that let's change the system to fit the people instead of making the people fit a system that we've created. Because as we have all really learned and seen that gender is really fluid, it's not this very strict system. There's a lot of movement, it can change, it really, it's not a, it's, they're not set buckets for people to fall in, people can create their own. I'd like to add, that was, I love that, Julie, thank you. That was one of the best explanations I've seen. And to remember that that I can occur any time along the lifetime, what Julie calls as the awakening, um, is very different in, in different people. And sometimes it happens very early and sometimes very late. And to just never question anyone's truth or question their stories. And every individual is different as to, you know, when everyone, everyone's just different. Dr. Sorrell, do you have any thoughts on that as well? I heard there's a pediatric endocrinologist at our institution who also reminds us that there's masculine or feminine or male and female each end of each of those letters that Julie described, and that it's not one or the other, it's a spectrum for each of them. And so people can fall in between for both their expression of masculine or feminine or their same sex versus opposite sex attractions and same with each of them. So it's, that's just a reminder that someone told me about. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Exactly. Like how, you know, your expression can be different than your identity or your orientation or your assigned sex. Like we can, there's so many different variations of, of who we are as human beings. It does not fall into just two categories. I remember a few years ago where I think maybe it was last year or the year before where the first, uh, I'm from the Netherlands. So the first Dutch passport was created where the gender had an X in it for uh, where, where this particular person did not identify as male or female. Um, and it was all over the news. And I remember feeling so proud in that moment of like, yes, like we should have that option in there for people because not everybody falls in any of these two categories. So what are some of the basic challenges of access uh, healthcare for transgender and gender non-conforming people? Dr. Sorrell, can I, can I stick with you for this question? Initially? Sure. So I think there's, at least I'll start on at least one of the main issues that 
we encounter in our university is that of a transgender person may come in and they're being talking to the first people that they meet who are the front desk workers and they have them filling out forms. And many, many times these forms don't even have the proper lines to express their gender identity. It'll say only sex or it won't say sex assigned at birth and gender identity. It'll have just sex. And I think by even just providing extra lines of gathering information about our patients, we show that we're open to their story and their experience and making sure that they have the individual uh, care that we all purport to have in healthcare. And that translates far throughout into, I'm sure we'll discuss more later about the electronic health records and interpretation of a patient's medical information. That's at least the first point in healthcare that is a hurdle that has to be overcome. And Dr. Legallo or Julie, do you have anything to add to that as well? Yeah, I think um, there's a myriad of issues that transgender individuals face with poor experiences with healthcare. Insurance is an easy one to think about, that uh, many of the insurance companies do not pay for trans-affirming healthcare, be it medical or surgical, and that's, that's a, a um, huge impediment for people getting the care that they deserve. Education of healthcare professionals, it's not taught well in most medical schools. I think it's getting better but historically it has not been well taught and many trans individuals feel like they have to teach their providers. I think, you know, the surveys that are out there are getting better, but still the majority of trans individuals in any given year have negative experiences with their, um, with their healthcare providers. So they're much less likely to go to the doctor. They're much less likely to, you know, we'll talk about that as I think we move on, but to get screened for cancer, for really anything. I think we're moving in the right direction, but we have a long way to go. And Julie? Yeah. So I have different experiences coming from being person in the lab at the same time being the recipient of the, of the care. When I moved here and I was looking for an endocrinologist, it was very tough for me to find someone who would cater to what they really need. And when I found one, the basic challenge was as what Dr. Legalo said, that usually it's the transgender person who would guide the clinician on the care that they need. And it's challenging because not everyone is medically inclined and know what they need. And I remember when I went to that endocrinologist, the first question was, what surgery did you have and what surgery do you want to have more? And we need to realize not all trans folks are gearing towards surgery. It's more than about, because here's the problem. When we talk about transgender individual, it's usually focused on the parts, on the body, which is very limiting again. So if we focus on the person's need, then we can cater something that is tailor-made to that person. And then we could be more efficient with giving care. And I told my endocrinologist that, that I'm happy with my transition, I'm not planning to do anything more. Hormone-wise, I'm okay. Like, I'm, I'm happy. So I only see him every quarter. We do our lab tests, and then he will tell me, oh, your lab tests are normal, which I think we will discuss later what is normal. <laughs> and yeah. But again, I think I'm an outlier because I'm on that side of the fence. But there's a lot of disparity because there's a lot of people, especially Black, Indigenous, and people of color, they don't have access to insurance. They don't have access to care that could really understand what they need. And this is really heartbreaking. Like, mm-hmm. Thanks, Julie. And bringing that back a little bit closer to home for pathology, transgendered or individuals who've had any sort of surgery, when they present to their clinician, there's challenges. But obviously, when those clinicians submit any kind of samples, to pathology, there can be challenges. So Robin, can you talk to us a little bit about some of the challenges that transgendered people face when they actually need anatomic pathology processing or reporting? Yeah, absolutely. So as an anatomic pathologist, like most of our patients, we interface with our patients mostly through their specimens. And what you're referring to are the, the organs that may be removed during gender-affirming surgeries. So for 
trans men, this would be like subcutaneous mastectomies, hysterectomies, salpingophorectomies, sometimes vaginectomies for transgender women, orchiectomies, and, and um, possibly penectomies during bottom surgery, and they get sent to pathology. And we're used to seeing these specimens, but we're not necessarily used to seeing these specimens in the hormonal milieus in which they have been exposed. Um, so we need to educate ourselves as to some of the changes that we may see, some of the pitfalls in diagnoses, and how we can add to the understanding of the healthcare process and not just blow them off as, you know, unimportant or just be conscious the way we're signing them out and certainly inclusive in the language we're using when we do that. There's an evolving literature. There was very little in the literature as a, a few years ago, but there's more reports as, um, as we're gaining some more information as to some of the things we may see. And then the other piece of that, which is, you know, more in the advocacy piece, but sometimes even like insurance companies may cover the insurance, but they don't cover the pathologic evaluation. And we need to you know, these specimens do need to be sent and we need to, we do need to evaluate them. And so um, kind of being aware of that is important. And then the second way that we interface with this population is through any other, any kind of specimens that we see in non-transgender individuals. But again, and I'll focus on kind of cancer screening specimens to remember that there may be hormonal influences. So a prostate biopsy on a trans woman who has been on estrogens may look very different than a, a cisgender individual, cisgender trans men. And so just being cognizant of that, I think is important. And then again, the language that we're using, the language we're putting in our comments to, to make sure that we're gender, we're gender inclusive. Just as a pre-follow-up to that, Robin, do you feel like there is sufficient literature for anatomic pathologists in the in the published literature to help people that are trying to make diagnoses or dealing with new specimens that they don't do? Do you think there's sufficient literature or is there room for research and additional publication in transgender-related pathology issues? Oh, there's absolutely room for increased increased literature. I think, um, like I said, we're, we're getting there. I think most of the major organ specimens, you can find one review on what, you know, there's a couple on, certainly on mastectomies. There's one or two on orchiectomies. So it's still pretty, it's still, there's still a, a, a paucity and there's still pretty small numbers. So I definitely think there is room for publication in this area and absolutely with cancer screening. We, I mean, the guidelines right now are really based on, as kind of Julie, you know, had alluded to, we, we focus on organs. If the organs present, it needs to be screened. And this is really empiric and it's not really evidence-based as to whether or not we should follow the same guidelines as we do for non-transgender individuals. I mean, it sort of makes sense, but again, we don't really know that if there's risk reduction or increased risk based on the, again, the kind of the hormonal milieu and, and not every patient who's transgender is on hormones, right? So it's very individualistic and these guidelines need to, um, to be very individualistic. So I think there's a lot of room for increased understanding um, publication, especially when it comes to some of the, the cancers that we see in this population. So Jeff, uh, following on Julie's comment, what about in the clinical laboratory with lab values and, you know, patients who've had gender affirming hormone therapy or surgery or really just have a gender in the system that's different from their gender identity? How does that cause problems with clinical lab values or changes in lab values? It definitely can cause problems. I know that our institution first started looking at it because of course, there are male and female specific reference intervals that apply to not every single laboratory value, but some of the most important ones are hemoglobin, hematocrit, some of the red blood cell indices, as well as creatinine. And these tell us things such as hemoglobin is important for transporting blood and cause of anemia. Creatinine is very important for estimating kidney function and changes in that can really affect whether or not someone is screening positive for kidney disease or not. And those are the values that tend to change the most with hormone therapy. We see that for transgender women taking estrogens with or without some uh, testosterone suppressing therapy, which usually includes spironolactone in the United States, we usually see a drop in red blood cells and a slight decrease in creatinine. And the red blood cells really kind of change to a cisgender 
female reference interval. And similarly, with uh, transgender men taking testosterone, this actually boosts up our blood cell levels. And we know this because we have many cisgender men who take testosterone and they might have to do therapeutic phlebotomies to remove extra red blood cells. But for transgender men under appropriate hormone supervision by an endocrinologist or just primary care doctor, we do see that the red blood cell levels increase up to about the cisgender male range. And so if you just sort of flip which reference interval you're using, you'll see that those red blood cells fall into the right range. For our institution, the problem came when to get approval for their hormone therapies, the pharmacy was administratively changing the gender in electronic medical record. And every time they changed it to female, then back to male, the physicians were getting flags from all these abnormal values every time in their inbox for all the multiple dozens of patients they saw, causing all sorts of problems they had to address. And then any time that a physician who wouldn't normally see the patients, if they were getting back a lab report, they might see that lots of values are flagged as abnormal. And that's what doctors are sort of many times trained to address in an outpatient clinical setting, whereas usually these values would just be normal, a new normal for transgender patients on hormone therapy. How was that fixed? They have fixed it now where they have different categories of sex. They have sex at birth, legal sex, and then gender. And so with that, they're able to get the insurance approval, which is what they were really doing the process, initiating that process for. And it's a process that causes other problems even in the, in the anatomic lab, uh, similar to what we were talking about just a second ago with, from Robin was that we have like prostate samples that come in from a woman and that gets rejected by the system automatically because women don't have prostates except that it's a transgender woman. And so some of these internally built electronic medical records are even part of the problem themselves because they're meant to reduce waste or improve efficiencies, but they didn't take into account the different situations that could occur. And not to be too technical, but just diving in that for, for just a little bit, has ICD-10 or 11 addressed this? You know, I mean, it's certainly, ICD-10 was incredibly detailed. And, you know, if you break the left half of your fourth pinky finger, you know, <laughs> crazy. But is it, I mean, it seems like the language would be enough that they could address that where you could have an ICD-10 for a prostate coming from a gender identified female or male, however, so that that, that wouldn't be an issue. Is, have you seen that in the ICD system? Do you expect that? I'm not enough of an expert in the ICD system to really answer that very well. I think that the issue for us was the laboratory information system that was causing the issues. I don't know if we're off. It speaks to the ICD system a little bit. And I don't think for non, for specimens that aren't related to affirming surgeries, there is no difference between the ICD codes. For the affirming surgeries, often the ICD, the ICD, old ICD-10 code, F64 was, was gender identity disorder. Sometimes you could use gender dysphoria, which was preferred. And that was, that's the code that's typically used for the surgery. The ICD-11 actually moved it out of like the psychiatric area into, um, I think, disorders of sexual health, maybe. Um, and it's called gender incongruence. But again, it's only used, in my experience, it's only used for the surgeries that are being done for affirmation rather than like the screening. For the screening, I don't think there's any differences that are going to help with the ICD system. And Julie, what are some additional challenges that can occur in the lab when we have transgender and gender non-conforming patients? Just what Jeff said, that there's usually flags because like the system is usually M or F. And if it's not stated that this person is assigned male at birth, but now F, then there's a question. And to share a story, if I go to my provider, there's always this question so they'll ask for my date of birth, they ask for my legal name, and then they would always tell me there's three person in the system. One is an M, one is an F, and one is unknown. So it usually confuses them. And I would tell them when I arrived here first time, it's the M marker, and that's what I'm using for now. So I always clarify that. Although when I write my, in my EMR, even though there's only line there for the name. I would always write my preferred name and gender 
so that when they call me outside in the clinic, like I will not be misgendered. Because sometimes they will call like they're looking for a, for a guy and then they cannot find someone like, okay, that's why. Yeah, I'll share a very unique and odd experience, I'm sure, for the medical healthcare professional involved. But when I was in college, I stopped drinking caffeine for like eight months. I don't know why, I just did, whatever. And I started drinking caffeine again, and I suddenly had bilateral, really terribly painful breast pain. And I didn't know what it was. I was like a college student, and I went to my doctor, and my doctor was very concerned because I was a little bit heavier. And so they're like, oh, we maybe we should get a mammogram. I'm like, if you think I should get a mammogram. So I go to the clinic to have a mammogram, and the woman comes out, and the look on her face when there was a guy standing there, you know, and I can imagine, like, that was a you know, not a harsh situation. It was just like a weird thing. But when you are a transgender person and you have that happen every time you have a healthcare interaction, it can really hurt on that side. But it also, you know, that just proves that the medical team needs training to understand how to, you know, deal with patients who are not what they're expecting, but still need high quality care and compassion. So, you know, I don't recommend ever having a mammogram if you're a man or you definitely need them if you're a woman, but it's not a great process, but it really was eye-opening for me to see the horror on her face when she came around the corner and, you know, it's like expecting it to be, I don't know what she expected to see there, but yeah. So I, I can see why when you go in, you know, as a transgender person and you're hoping to like, have a positive experience and someone comes out and says, and they're looking for a person's name and you know that that's your name and you know, it's going to misidentify you. It's upsetting. It's morally degrading and it's upsetting. And so we have to make sure that the, the healthcare team knows how to deal with that. Absolutely. I'd also add that, um, especially with electronic medical records that get pushed to patient charts so quickly and have patients have access to them, the flags that get, especially like on the hormone level. So if like a transgender woman is beginning hormone treatment and it's being monitored and the testosterone comes back and it's flagged as being high, but for her, it's actually like, I mean, it's flagged as being, as being low, but for her, it's still way higher than she wants. It can be really triggering and it's got, you know, a little, little flag on it that's in the opposite direction. And at least prior to that, the physician could, you know, explain, like explain the levels or whatnot, but now everything gets pushed to the chart so quickly. Sometimes the patients have access to it before the physician has a chance to talk to them about it. So what are some of the challenges to implementing transgender specific reference intervals? Because it sounds like that could be clearly be very, very beneficial for both the patient as well as the healthcare providers. What are some of the challenges and what can we do to mitigate those? I'll jump in real quick at first because I've been trying to work to improve this because the first major barrier is that there's just not enough information. Up until a few years ago, the biggest study of transgender women was only 55. And for most standards in clinical labs, we have to have 120 people of a specific reference of a healthy population for a reference range. And so at least for us, we, there was several transgender clinics in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And we went there and we looked and saw what was normal for these patients when they're on hormone therapy. And we got about 300 in total transgender men and women that we were able to parse out what looked normal for them. And we even had a lot of their baseline values before they started hormone therapy. And so we'd see how much they changed and whether they did change at all. And provided some interesting information. Some things were small changes that weren't always clinically significant, like the platelets may go down a little bit with testosterone therapy, but it's still within a normal range. But I think that's one of the major barriers is just the right information. And I know Dina Green's doing a really lot of great work on this as well with prospectively collecting samples from transgender patients and trying to establish new reference ranges. But then there's even harmonization across different laboratory instruments that we have to make sure that then they each are able to see the correct ranges within their own instrument for this population. Robin or Julie, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really going to be challenging because what Jeff said, there's not enough data. And at the same time, to establish the reference interval, not only because like, it doesn't mean that your patient is transgender. It doesn't mean that you would have a specific range already. Remember, there's transgender folks who are early in their transition or hormone therapy. So their ranges would be probably more skewed to one side. There's transgender folks who are 10 years, five years on hormone therapy, and then their ranges would be 
on different levels. So that would be really challenging because not only if we can fix the EMR to remove the flagging, the next thing is which part of the reference ranges would this person go? Again, this falls back to having a tailor-made concoction to, to the patient by the provider. That's a great point, actually. Something that we thought about, and hopefully very soon we have a study coming out as well, looking at sort of five-year follow-up data for all of these different basic lab values from basic metabolic panel, CDC, lipids, and seeing how they stabilize over time. And it looks like, at least for the most part, that after about six months, the physician and patient have titrated to a good level and it's stable over the long term, which should hopefully be helpful in implementing them in the future. And you guys have mentioned this a little bit. I think I think Julie mentioned it, but the electronic health records or the LIS, the lab information system, how, can you just briefly talk about how your specific one handles the sex of patients in general, but also transgender patients and what you would change about it if you could, or, or can you envision how that could be better for transgender patients? But how does it do it currently? And are there, you know, what is that? How does that cause problems? So I, I can go first. In our institution, it's not done well. We have a binary system. There's an M or an F, and it's, um, it used to be very hard to change, regardless of what other documents were changed for individuals. It's become a lot easier to change that on the um, EMR, but you know, it gets changed, and then we don't, you know, as going back to kind of what Julie said, uh, we don't have a documentation of what the sex was assigned at birth. So, you know, the question arises, you know, when, I'm, when, when I have these conversations with people, do we really need to know if someone's transgender? Probably no, not for every specimen, for every encounter, for every, but there certainly are instances in which I think it helps us provide best medicine. So at UVA, I'm not pleased with the way our EMR is. I think some of the, um, perhaps some of the information is collected because I think there's a, we're encouraged to do so, but it's not necessarily reported to the providers who are accessing the EMR to the patient of the patient. Julie? Let's also take note that the most care that we can give, but at the same time, the less information we can disclose, if I may say, like not all trans folks would like to disclose their journey. I think that's as simple as that. And I remember one time when there was a patient being merged. In the merge form, there was bold letters, transgender. I don't know if the patient was given notice about it and asked for permission. And for me, if it was me, I would have preferred to be asked. So it's very tricky, if I may say, because like you want to give the care that you want, but at the same time, you want to be as what Dan said, you want to give the most empathy and compassion as you can. And it's hard because you don't know what the person's journey is because of you only have the male and the female, and you cannot assume based on that. And I don't have a concrete answer for now. This is tricky. Well, I feel like one of the threats throughout this entire conversation is that it sounds to me that we have a healthcare system set up to treat groups of people but what really would be a solution would be to have individual individualized healthcare, where it's really not about a group of people, but it's about individuals. So making sure that we, you know, have individual reference ranges for them specifically, that we have, you know, however they want to be addressed, that we have EMRs that, you know, address their needs and, and, and have their pronouns or, or, or situation. Is that, is that kind of a, a, an accurate assessment of what I'm hearing? What do you, what do you guys think? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think we hear the term precision medicine thrown around a lot. And this is just an example where precision medicine is is the way to provide the right kind of compassionate care. I mean, we assume medical records are confidential, that they're private, that if a patient wants to, you know, identify as female and doesn't want people to think they're male, that they, when they go to the healthcare provider, that should not be a risk right? That, that someone's going to, in quotes, out them as being 
born male or, or whatever the situation is. That should be our role as healthcare providers is to provide compassion and help them solve the problem they have that day. Because the problem that person has is not that they're transgender. They may have a cold. They may need to have, you know, a stitches in their hand where they cut themselves. But if it's always a big deal, then it becomes a problem. And so we have to find a solution. And I, I just like to throw out there that there are 26 letters of the alphabet, you know, M and F are only two of those. And there's artificial intelligence. And if artificial intelligence can tell Amazon to tell me what to buy, artificial intelligence can tell my doctor how not to be a jerk and make sure that they understand my reference range when I go in after having, you know, gone through a journey as, as Julie was describing. Absolutely. So where, where can we improve in transgender pathology and just transgender health in general? How can we, what are some ways in which we can best serve that particular patient population? One thought that comes to mind is that we've mentioned like the front-facing personnel of the office and how as pathologists we may feel exempt from that sort of patient-facing experience. But it is good to remember that we also, many times phlebotomists are very patient-facing and are part of the pathology department. And they do see the patients and have to confirm their usually their name and date of birth and many times their sex as well or if the name and on the bracelet doesn't match the kind of person they see in front of them, it's important for them to get good training to explain to the person the reasons why they have to do this for certain legal reasons. And that to say, I you know this might be uncomfortable or the reason to do this is for legal purposes. And I'm happy to address you how you like to be addressed or let me know what your preferred name is. And we'll confirm this for legal reasons. Cause I know that that's an area that we do have some control over and that may not be the best explanation of training to give. Julia Robin could speak to that better, but that's at least one area that we can, that is within our purview, our area of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, Jeff. And I think even behind the scenes, it's so important to model professionalism and compassion and all of these things. And a lot of, you know, those at least who are in academic medicine who are working with residents. And if you do have a specimen from a transgender patient to use correct pronouns, and to not avoid the discussion, but have the discussion and talk about what changes we may see and be open about it, even though we may not be in front of the patients. I think other areas are just be curious and, and ask questions. You know, a very difficult area for trans men are pap smears, right? So, so many trans men still have a cervix and need, need pap smears. And um, they, have, they have like 10 times the rate of an, an inadequate pap. And so... You know, what does that mean? What is the follow-up of those pap smears? Is that, you know, and that, that can be from the procedure can be very uncomfortable for them and uh, so difficult to obtain a good specimen. And then uh, many of these men are on, on testosterone, so of atrophy. And to, again, look at your language, do inclusivity audits of everything that you're putting out there. And um, we had some old archaic language in our pap smears that, that uh, and inadequate paps that, you know, may recommend estrogen cream. And that's, a, you know, that's the last thing a trans man wants to put on their cervix is estrogen cream. And so be aware of those kinds of things, but really follow up. Like what is or the side-by-side studies is, is self HPV testing just as adequate for this population. And maybe that's what we need to move to. Um, so just be curious and ask the questions and be willing to, to do the work. Julie or Jeff, any additional comments? So I think for us in the lab, I see what we can do. Because when we talk about transgender pathology, like there's a very thin line, like when we talk about trans health, there's always transgender pathology or the other way around. It's very challenging for us to only talk transgender pathology if we don't have people who can access proper and inclusive medical care. Mm-hmm. That's the basic thing. And I don't want to sound very political, but there's a lot of changes in the system that makes it harder for people of transgender experience to access this care. And if they don't access this care, then the transgender pathology topic that we're discussing would be now affected. And I think for us in the lab, we could be more of an advocate with the whole system saying that this is how we are challenging with respect to setting up our guidelines with respect to reference ranges or the flags that we're getting in the lab. And I think if we raise this issue with the whole community, then it could open discussions on how it can be resolved. I think that's one thing we can do from our side and in the laboratory because 
we don't deal with patients directly. We only get the sample and we don't know the whole story when we receive the sample. So I think for people who questions what is the story behind the sample and how can I, as a laboratory professional, make the most out of the sample? I think that's the best thing I can say. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that, you know, one of the things I've, I've always said is that every, every cell you remove from a person's body is a, a gift they've given you. And it's your job as a pathologist or a laboratory professional to do everything you can with that sample and treat it as if it were your own and to yield the best possible result. Because, you know, you ask a lot of someone when they give you a piece of themselves, whether it be a blood sample or urine or stool or blood biop tissue biopsy, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, it was theirs and, you know, they gave it to you. And if we don't have enough compassion and respect for, to understand that person's plight or their journey or where they are, we don't treat that sample the way we should. And I think that, you know, when we look at the work that we do in global health, where patients who have biopsies for cancer, they don't have pathology services just get thrown away. That's because there's not a lack of understanding of that. And I think that that's a universal concept and it gets into you know the area that you mentioned julie of advocacy and how can we how can we advocate as pathologists as lab professionals as transgender people working in the lab as part of the transgender community you know at large like what can we do uh, and i'll ask this to all of you to move this forward like do we need to have awareness campaigns is there a role for the lab to take a lead in that how would you how would you envision that advocacy moving forward and this is something you've done for a while julie but you know as a group what do you think from the point of view of the lab we could do i don't think i i don't know if i have like a pathology specific answer for that but definitely you know we need to educate ourselves as to what the issues are then i don't want to make a political talk but this is often at a political level that there are bills that are proposed at state and federal levels that um, really are anti-trans health, that there are some out there that actually prohibit physicians from providing trans-affirming health care, especially to, to our youth. So being aware that they exist and being willing to um, lobby at even just a very basic level, I think is super important, or at least knowing that these issues are out there and this group this group is really really fighting for equity which should just really be non-negotiable right it just it, it really amazes me but from the pathology standpoint again to remember that we i feel like sometimes we, we remove ourselves and we just sort of accept the specimens that are given to us but we don't feel like we have any role in you know i think that the numbers for the trans population they're like 70 percent less likely to get cancer screening biopsies than the cisgender population. And we don't feel like we have this responsibility to increase that the same way maybe the frontline physicians who are dealing with this population do. But I argue that we do. That's part of our job is to prevent cancer, right? And so we can't prevent it if we can't diagnose it. Yeah, that's really great. I know when I think of the question, it is very challenging because it seems like such a large problem out there. And, but you know, like Julie was saying, like advocacy is very important. And at least for people who might think that yeah, it's too big, I just can't do anything at all. That means you at least think to start where you are and at your hospital, your community and start there trying to change things. Cause at least how I see it is the laboratory is a big part of the system. And I think that that's where a lot of the issues are. And so when we're bringing on new laboratory information systems, like we did at our hospital in the last few years, it's important to make sure we're a part of those conversations and that the conversation includes considerations for transgender healthcare. And another thing I would love to see is some kind of um, consortium or like, you know, banking for cancer specimens, right, from trans individuals. We have no, co I don't think any one center is going to gain enough specimens to be terribly meaningful, at least uh, not over a long period of time, but if we could collectively, being a pediatric pathologist who, who deals with rare cancers, the only way we get, we get information we need is through these large clinical trials, through the you know, Children's Oncology Group and others, but to have, I mean, that's sort of a pipe dream of mine is to be part of some sort of you know, consortium where we could gather this data. 
Yeah, and and I think just staying with the theme of that, because I want to come to Julie on the advocacy question, but I want to add a thought before I get her comments. There's being a minority, it doesn't matter what why you're a minority, there's being a minority in a population that's large enough that there are enough of you that someone, you know, someone thinks, oh, we really should, we should help this group with this issue, right? And then there's being a minority in a place where you're the only one or the first one that's ever been experienced by that system. And when we look at things like racial disparities and we're talking about how to get black men screened for prostate cancer, you know, we don't need to do that training in inner city Chicago. We need to do that training in Montana where that one random black man that happens to settle there at some point in a predominantly white community will eventually need to have that care. And, and it's it doesn't matter what kind of minority you're talking about, that geographic minoritization of a person or a population creates a healthcare problem because there's not enough experience to do that. So when we think about advocacy and trying to help transgender populations, how does that figure into the advocacy work? Uh, and I'm particularly interested in Julie's comments on this. When you think about not not when we're talking about transgender in New York or San Francisco or San Diego or Chicago or Texas, you know, where you have large health systems and large urban populations. But what about those unfortunate transgender individuals who, who want to live in a rural part of the country and still need health care? How can we advocate or help those individuals who are at the most risk to have something bad go wrong? What we usually say before we advocate for any aspect of our living, usually we advocate for our identities. And this is why I started our discussion with asking those four basic questions, because we need to understand that every individual has their own AINO. Not because I'm a trans woman and I have a friend from Brazil who's also a trans woman, doesn't mean that we need the same healthcare. It doesn't mean that we need to have something with our basic lifestyle. It's different. Doesn't mean that we're on the same labels that we need to have the same kind of needs. And that's the challenge because as a society, this is something that is not taught to us when we grow up. It's always on that narrow binary system. And if we just realize that it's not that black and white, male, female, I think people in the rural areas could have better quality of life because it, it's, it's cascading. Like if you're in the province, people doesn't know what a transgender person is or they only know transgender person based on how is it portrayed before in the media. Predator, sex worker, someone who is considered like deviant. If someone comes out in that area as a trans person, do you think that person would be accepted basically not only in healthcare, housing, education. So if we go back to the fact that if we teach and open hearts and minds of the diversity of sexuality and gender, I think everything would follow. It might not be easy, but I think we would go there. This is something that I can attest to coming from the Philippines. Yeah, 2001, there was no transgender advocacy or support group in the Philippines until there were five girls who were discriminated to go in to go in the bar because they were labeled as sex worker. They fought for it. They set up STRAP, the Society of Transsexual Women of the Philippines. And since then, we've been advocating for proper medical care, discrimination, education. And it's slow, but it's getting there. Like we help some of our sisters who have been banned from school because they cannot wear the clothes that they want. We have helped people access an endocrinologist. It always starts with education and information because until we open that narrow mindset of what gender and sexuality is, I think we will not go anywhere. It will always be a problem until people can realize that their view of the world is not MNF, black and white. Thank you. Robin, closing thoughts from you and Jeff. No, I'm just so glad this conversation is being had, right? I just feel like it's, um, it is so important. And for someone who sort of lives with this day in and day out, I just feel like the conversations, like I forget that 
most people aren't having these conversations. So thank you for thank you for for doing this, and um, it's really been a pleasure, Jeff. And I think there's just lots of great opportunity to learn more, and there's many instances I don't think we even mentioned, such as blood donation, that this comes into play. There was a case study about somebody with a kidney transplant who had creatinine levels that either qualified them or didn't based on the gender marker used in their record, qualified them for a transplant or not. So there's very important implications of the lab's role in transgender health. And I think we're going to have to keep working on it. Mm -hmm. Julie, any closing thoughts? I'm just very thankful to meet everyone. I'm, I'm thankful to Robin, to Jeff for your help and for your studies. I think it's going to be something that would open doors. Thank you for AATP. I'm really touched because I'm in this organization who's very inclusive, very diverse. And Dan, I know Dan from Global Health, of course. And I'm, I'm really touched. Like I've never experienced this kind of empathy and compassion from an organization. Thank you for opening the door and opportunity. Yeah, you're very welcome. And let's hope we're not, we're definitely not the last. This is just the beginning. I think, you know, just hearing what everybody was saying today, just, you know, there's, I'm so proud of all the work that you all have done and that other people have done. I think, you know, there's clearly a lot more work to, to be done and that, that, you know, will, will happen in the future. But it's just, it's also a very exciting time that we're creating these pathways and opportunity and the type of healthcare for everybody that they deserve and want. So I just want to thank all of you for having this conversation. I, I kind of want to circle back to Julie, how you started a conversation about just the, the how the assigned sex, the gender expression, gender identity, and then orientation all create you. Because I just love that. And I think those are such fantastic questions to that you started the conversation with and it really set the tone for just self-reflection and creating a more open open mindset within ourselves and then hopefully also for our community and our healthcare worldwide. So thank you all so very much. Thank you. And I'll just say equity. Let's just go with equity, which is my, my mantra these days. I think we're going to come to the end. So I guess thank you all for participating. Uh, this was really, really interesting. I know that everybody has learned a lot from each other. I hope that our listeners have learned a lot from this and I'm sure they're going to have questions. And so we will, we will work to hopefully see, see and answer those questions as we move forward. Please do remind people if you're listening to this podcast uh, to tell your colleagues about us uh, and remember to subscribe to your fa their favorite podcast aggregator so they don't miss any of our future podcasts. These launch, I believe it's every two weeks, low T, is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah, and so um, we look forward to interacting with all of you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and then as a final remember, don't forget that you can receive both CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASP store on our website at www.acp.org. <laughs>